0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good evening. Let's turn in our Bibles to that book, Obadiah, all 21 verses of that book. We're going to cover the whole book tonight. All 21 verses, one chapter. And let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come as your children into your presence. You know us completely. You know us intimately. And what's more, you want to reveal yourself to us so that we know you more intimately. Lord, we can't pull anything over on you. You see every motivation, every thought. We're just so grateful that because of the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, you've accepted us. That we're part of your family and you care for us in such a detailed manner. Help us, Lord, to understand some of the great principles that are outlined in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, every now and then, somebody will come on the scene that's Sort of an unknown. They come on the scene and they, they produce some writing or some song and then suddenly they get known for that. Now, in the, in the music industry, that's a one-hit wonder. That is, if they do it one time. They produce a great song. Everybody rallies around or sings that song for a while and they don't keep producing a whole series of hits, but it's a one-time deal. They're one-hit wonders. So you can think back through time to a few of those examples. Like in 1968, Iron Butterfly, Gata De Vita. How many remember that? Oh, you're old. <laughs> Congratulations. Or 1977, You Light Up My Life by Debbie Boone. Yeah, you really like that, don't you? 1996, Los del Rio, La Macarena, was famous. Hey. And then in the year 2000, um, The Baja Men, who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who? And I'm still trying to figure out the answer to it. Who did let the dogs out? I've been wandering ever since. Well, Obadiah is sort of like a one hit wonder. In fact, the minor prophets sort of play that way in the Bible. They're not minor because of inferiority. They're minor prophets because of brevity. It's a very short, single unit of Scripture. And perhaps no one is more minor in the minor prophets than Obadiah. He's the most minor of the minor prophets. Because he only wrote 21 verses. That's it. 21 verses, and he gets to be in the Bible. And I call him a one-hit wonder because he comes from nowhere, utters this prophecy, and then he disappears. Now, I discovered there are at least 12 men named Obadiah in the Old Testament. Did you know that? None of them are the authors of this book. Virtually we know nothing about this man other than his name. We don't know where he's from. We know nothing about his parentage. We know nothing about the exact timing of his prophecy. We don't know his shirt size. We don't know if he had a mustache or not. I just threw in the shirt size. We know nothing. So he comes from obscurity, utters a prophecy, the Holy Spirit, directs it to be in the Scripture, and we have it before us tonight. It's also a minor prophet, Because few people have knowledge of the contents of Obadiah. I wonder how many tonight thought, Obadiah, good! One of my favorite books. My life verse is right there in Obadiah. I base my ministry on Obadiah. It's one of the most obscure books. It's certainly the shortest book in the Old Testament. As I said, only 21 verses. But we do know his name, and that's it I said. That's about all we know, and I'll try to piece the rest together for you. We know that his name means worshiper of Yahweh, or God-worshipper, or servant of the Lord is another translation. And you probably know that whenever parents had babies, they would think of names that would capture their own hopes in dedicating their children to the Lord. So can't you picture Obadiah's mom and dad, whoever they were, having that baby boy dedicating little Obi to the Lord? Say, may he be a worshiper of God. May he be your servant. Obadiah. It's a good name, by the way. Now, if you decide to name your child Obadiah, he may have difficulty in school a little bit or with some of his friends, but you could give him a nickname like Obi, right? Obi-Wan Kenobi. There's several famous ones throughout history. Sorry about that. Okay, what is the, the, the theme of this one-hit wonders song? And it is written in poetic fashion, so it is sort of like a song. It, it is a doom song. The theme of Obadiah's prophecy is one of judgment. You say, well, we've heard that song before. A lot of the minor prophets do that. Yes, they do. But what makes this guy different is it's a song of doom on the nation of Edom, a neighbor of Judah, a neighbor of the southern kingdom. So it's not a a message of doom on Judah or Israel, but on a neighbor. Because of how that neighbor treated Israel. So it's a doom song. And you could outline the 21 verses of this book using that theme of doom. Uh, verses 1 through 9 is the exclamation of doom. The prophet pronounces it and gives the chief reason for the judgment. Then there is the explanation of doom, beginning around verse 10 to verse 14. And then there is the expansion of of doom, from verse 15 to verse 21. So it centers on judgment. And you know, (laughs) that's not a popular subject, is it? Nobody really likes to deal with the subject of judgment. And frankly, preachers don't like to talk about it. It's an uncomfortable subject. People don't want to deal with it, or else people will make jokes about it. I'm not afraid of judgment. Interesting that Ted Turner of Turner Broadcasting, who went on record as saying, "quote Christianity is a religion for losers," close quote, which by the way I, I agree. That's why I came to Christ. I was losing. I wanted to win. But anyway, uh, Ted Turner, Ted Turner said something interesting. He said, "I'm looking forward to dying and going to hell." He said, Heaven's perfect. Who wants to go to a perfect place? How boring, at least in hell, we'll be able to improve our environment. As if that's the purpose of it. As if there's going to be a tenant improvement plan in hell. And so, not only do people not want to deal with the subject, but if it comes up, they quickly dismiss it by some idiotic joke. Reminds me of what I read in Reader's Digest. A little quip that said, the way a lot of people talk about judgment or hell, you would think that hell has become air-conditioned over time. Well, this prophet speaks straight up to the Edomites. So, we begin in verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. The vision of the God-worshipper, the servant of the Lord. And it's a vision, it's not a dream. So, it was something that was given to him while he was awake. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise, let us rise up against her for battle. So here we begin the first section of this one-hit wonder. And it's the exclamation of doom. Let's just... Refresh our memories about Edom. Who who were they? Edom had become the enemy of her neighbor Israel. Now let's go back in history. You know that Edom and Israel were nations that started with two brothers. In fact, both of them were grandsons of Abraham. One was named Jacob. The other was named Esau. You probably remember the story. Isaac's wife, Rebecca was pregnant. Isaac was excited. Rebecca was in pain. And not all that excited, because her labor was very difficult. And it was so difficult that she entered into a time of prayer and asked God, why am I having such problems in my pregnancy? And so the Lord told her. He said, there are two nations in your womb. Now that would make a difficult pregnancy. Okay, a child, that's uh, that's hard enough. Two children, two nations, excuse me. Of course, there were two boys that would be born that would become great nations. It was a prophecy. God said, two nations are in your womb. They're going to struggle against each other. But the older is going to serve the younger. So the first one was born. His name was Esau. Esau means hairy. because he was red and hairy when he was born. The second came out of the womb, grabbing his brother Esau's heel. Like somebody who wanted to trip up his brother, supplant his brother. And so they noticed that, and Dad said, look at that, he's grabbing his brother's heel. Let's call him heel catcher. Yaakov, supplanter. So you have Harry and heel catcher, and both of them were born, both of them brothers. As they grew, there was an animosity between those two boys in that family. Jacob was different than Esau. Esau was a hunter, an outdoors guy, a man's man. Jacob was really a mama's boy. Loved to cook. Signed up for home economics in high school. But not Esau. However, Esau, though the favored son of Jacob, didn't care about spiritual things. Now listen to this, so much so that he took his own birthright as being the inheritor of his father's position and estate, the spiritual birthright of being head of that family that God was producing, and sold it. That's right, he sold it to his brother Jacob for a bowl of stew. Again, his brother was a good cook. Hey, make some of that great green chili stew, Jacob, I'll give you my birthright. I love your cooking. He did it. And he forgot all about it. That is, Esau did. Until it was time for dad to die and pass on the inheritance. Mom was in on the deal and got Jacob to dress up like Esau. I'll make the story quick because I think you already remember it. But in effect, Jacob tricked his dad into blessing him before he died with that blessing of the firstborn, even though he was secondborn. When Esau came home and found out what had happened, he was livid, he was angry, and he swore he would kill his brother. By that time, his brother left, fled the house on the run. So this animosity that started with two brothers grew out of it. As time went on, Jacob settled in the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and to himself, Jacob, the land of Israel. Esau traveled east across the Jordan River and settled in an interesting place called Seir, S-E-I-R, where Mount Hor, H-O-R, is, and he became the father of the Edomites. Now, this animosity between two brothers grew into an animosity between two nations, for a long time. So much so that years later when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt into the promised land, they came to the border of Edom. And Moses sent an email to the king of Edom. I'm modernizing it a little bit. Hey, we're in the area. We need to pass through your borders to the land of Canaan that God gave to us. We just want to pass through your land. We don't want to take anything from you. We don't want to harm anything, we're not going to stop, we're just going to travel through. If we drink any water, or if we have to give any water of yours to our animals, we'll pay for it. The Edomites said, no, you can't even pass through our land, and the Edomites instead mounted an army to attack Israel, and took out some of the older folks and some of the stragglers in the crowd, killed them. So the animosity grew worse. Well, as time went on, this, this um, animosity between nations came to a head Till finally King David decided enough is enough. And he took over Edom, and his son Solomon taxed them. So this is the kind of animosity that grew up between these two nations. And uh, you're going to read something in verse 2. Let's just get down to it took a long time in verse 1. You're wondering, are we going to make it to the end of this book? Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. A couple of interesting features you should know about. The capital of Edom is a place we call today Petra. Some of you have traveled to that city of Petra. Two notable features, proximity and security. Now, get this. It was located on a trade route from Babylon to Egypt. So the Babylonians and the Egyptians would pass through the capital city. So caravans would be there. They would bring their wealth. They would bring their goods. They would bring their information and communication. Also, their security was interesting. The city of Petra... Uh, was located um, uh, in a uh, fortified area. And in in, in a few minutes, we're going to show you some pictures when we get down a little bit more uh, up on the screen. It was located in an area that was heavily fortified. They thought, that is the people who lived in it, no one will ever take us here. We are impregnable. We're impenetrable. And that resulted in what is mentioned in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Okay, think about that for a minute. God is telling them, here's the big problem that I have with you, the nation of Edom. Your pride. Now, we have a problem with that. Because typically we don't see pride as that big of an issue. Okay, it's, it's a problem, we would admit. It's a sin. But it's not so big that God would judge an entire nation because of it. Is it? It is. You know, think how it would be if you described a person, well, that guy's a murderer. Oh, wow, that's horrible. That guy's a thief. Ooh, that's bad. Yeah, and also, he's a child abuser. Oh, man, he's the worst. Okay, now what if you said, that guy's full of pride. Most people go, "Uh, yeah, and your point is? That's the human perspective. But you know what from God's perspective? Pride is the sin of sins. It's the seed of all error and all evil. Think back to the beginning. Think of Satan who had a very important position on God's staff, but he said, I will ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. It was that pride that caused his and a third of the angels fall. It was pride that caused the rift between God and Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden. The basic form of sin is independence from God's control. That's pride. So God is a big problem with it. Now we'll see what this pride developed into as these verses go on. We can see in verse 3 and 4 what they were proud of. They were proud of their security. Remember I said they thought their city was impenetrable? The city of Petra. And if you ever get a chance, check it out. Go there. Um, have you ever seen Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? Remember where they found the treasure? Remember as they walked through those canyons and they came to that big temple? That's the city of Petra. That's where it was filmed. So you're going, oh, I get it. Back in 1812, there was a, a researcher uh, who heard about the city. It had never been discovered until 1812 in modern times. He heard some Arabs talk about it, and so he tried to go see it, and eventually he saw it. His name was... Um, John Ludwig Burckhardt, And he discovered the city of Petra. And what he discovered was this, first of all, this narrow gorge, only about 15 feet wide in an average and a mile long, and the walls jetting up into the sky, some up to over 100 or 200 feet high. So you had to wind your way through this long, narrow, what they call a Sikh, S-I-Q, long gorge, to even get into the city. So, get this. Historians tell us that a dozen men could fight off an army because the whole army had to go almost single file into this narrow gorge to even get into the city. That's why they said, we're impenetrable. And they they placed their buildings carved them out of the rock, out of solid rock. They didn't add stones to it. They carved into the rock. And they built their homes, their habitation, up high. This is one of the treasury and See, this guy walked a mile for a camel. Okay, see how, how that is raised up into the hills? Just like an eagle would build a nest. They thought, nobody can touch us. And so notice, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high... You say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. The doom upon the nation of Edom is a living historical illustration of Proverbs 16:18. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Now, it was some time before God judged them. He pronounced it, but they, they endured for quite a while. There's an old saying. It says, The wheels of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. So though it took a while before the Edomites felt the punch of this judgment, they were eventually obliterated. 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 When is the last time you met an Edomite? Yeah, I got a neighbor. He's an Edomite. Not going to happen. There are none. They're gone. If thieves, verse 5, had come to you, if robbers by night, it's the only way you could really get there. If you were going to rob that city, you'd have to rob it at night. Because you come by daytime, and again, a dozen men could fend off an army. Oh, how you would be cut off? Would they not have stolen till they've had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Grape farmers always left the edge of their property ungleaned, unharvested, so that the poor could come in. And even on the best day, it took a couple, two or three, Uh, trips through the vineyard to pick all the grapes here's God's point I'm going to make such a thorough end of you that the first time will be enough you don't even need a second or third time you'll be destroyed oh how Esau shall be searched out verse 6 how his hidden treasures shall be sought after All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. Then men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread, now notice this, shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Not only were they proud in their security, they they were proud about the confederacy. That's mentioned here. They, They had allies with other nations. The Babylonians and the Egyptians knew that the best bank in the Middle East was to put your money and jewels at Petra because of its proximity, because of these red cliffs that adorned and and protected it. And so, both Egypt and Babylon stored treasure houses in the treasuries there at Petra. They formed an alliance. So, The people in Edom thought, man, we have the best neighbors in the world. We have Egypt on our side. We have Babylon on our side. If we get into a a war with any other nation, we're protected. We have the best armies in the world on our side. They became very proud in their military strength. However, the Babylonians, their allies, ended up attacking them. And then as time went on, it got worse in the 5th century B.C. There was a group called the Nabataeans. Ever heard of them? The Nabataeans were sort of a a desert Bedouin tent-dwelling group that came to the gates of the Edomites and offered peace. And uh, the people in Edom thought, these are our friends and we need more help and more allies. So the Edomites invited this, this group of Nabataeans into the city of Petra, prepared a meal for them, had a huge banquet, treated them like royalty. As soon as the Nabataeans were invited in, they turned and killed all of the guards and took over the city. So you can see how accurately this prophecy was fulfilled. They shall force you to the border. Men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you and no one is aware of it. Time went on, and as time went on, there was a group of people down in Judah called the Maccabees. Have you ever heard of the Maccabees? During the Maccabean revolt, a guy by the name of John Hyrcanus led a revolt against Edom, and again diminished it in power. So eventually, those people who remained in the area assimilated into Israel and became really a part of Judah. They became known as the Idumeans. I'm saying that because there was a very important king in the New Testament who came from Idumea. His name was Herod the Great. He was an Edomite that became an Idumean that eventually made his way to Israel and worked for the Roman government to take over that part of the world. Will I not say, verse 8... Will I not say in? Will I I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? So we see a third thing they were proud of. They were proud of their proximity. They were proud of their confederacy, and here they're proud in their sagacity or their wisdom. They had wise guys. Did you know? that the Edomites were known as the wisest people in the ancient world. And here's why. They were on a trade route so that the philosophers, the tradesmen, the information gatherers from Egypt and Babylon would would travel through their town and exchange the stories. So it became a proverb, the wisdom of Edom. And we have an example of that in the book of Job. One of Job's Comforters. One of his buddies was a guy by the name of Eliphaz the Temanite. And Teman or Taman, which is mentioned here, was a city in Edom. There was another guy named Bildad the Shuhite. Remember him? He was from an area in Edom. A mountain named after where he was from. A Shuhite. Not because they sold shoes there, because that was just part of the mountains of Edom. And they're both mentioned here. Verse 9, Then your mighty men, O Taman, Eliphaz was one of them, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off in slaughter. Now that's the first section of this book. The exclamation of doom. We're just now about to have the explanation of the doom. But I want you to consider this thing of pride and why pride is so dangerous you know here's God saying I'm going to judge an entire nation because of their pride and you say well now why is pride such a a dangerous deal I understand how bad it was in the garden I understand how bad it is in terms of Satan's fall from heaven but here's why it's so bad in any generation pride gives an unbeliever a false sense of security they get into a jam and they think, oh, no problem. I have enough wisdom. I have enough money. I have enough friendships around me. If I get into a jam, I'll trust in those things. It gives people a false sense of security. However, when there's a real crisis, man's solutions fall flat. We've all discovered that. When there's a real crisis... Even the most ardent atheist will look heavenward. I found it very interesting, and Alan, you were there with us in 9-11 at the, new, at the Trade Center in New York City. We discovered that it didn't matter who we talked to after the Twin Towers fell. We were there at ground zero. When we asked people, you want to pray with us? They'd say, sure. They'd say, well, you know, I don't believe in prayer. No, they, yes. Everybody was open to that. Even politicians, they were singing patriotic songs on the steps in Washington. It's amazing how, in a crisis, man, even at his best, with his best solutions, falls flat. So here they are, prideful in their assets, their proximity, their wisdom, their alliances, falls flat when there's a real crisis and it was coming. Now let's look at the second part, beginning in verse 10, and that is um, the explanation. for violence against your brother Jacob. Now, this is what you're going to discover. You're going to discover in just in the next few verses what their pride led to. Now we're going to get some focus on the real problem. Pride was the overarching issue, but their pride led to some very ungodly behavior. And now we get some focus. And the focus is the way they treated their brothers. Remember, these two nations were brother nations. And did you know that back in Deuteronomy 23, God gave a commandment to the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel? God said, Do not abhor an Edomite because he is your brother. I don't care how bad they are, don't hate him in your heart. So when pride reaches the state, where there is a characteristic unbrotherliness, I know that's not a good English word, that prevails where you want to expose and you want to hurt rather than mend and heal, you've got a serious situation. That's the sin of Edom. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Forever. In that day, and by the way, you find this phrase in the next few verses repeated eight times. In that day, or on that day. It's that day of judgment. In that day, or speaking, going back to the day that they uh, sinned against Israel. In that day you stood on the other side. In the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. Now, if you happen to have a new international version, that verse is translated a little bit more accurately. It would render it, in the day when you stood aloof from your brother. What is is the prophet speaking of? In 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. We believe... Though it's not dated, we believe that Obadiah was written probably a year later, 585 B.C., after Jerusalem fell. And this is referring to how the Edomites treated the Jews during the attack and destruction of the temple by the Babylonians. They stood aloof. They watched what was happening with the Babylonians destroying their brother, and they had a wait-and-see attitude. Well, let's, let's not get involved. Let's just wait and see what happens. They stood aloof. They didn't love their brother. You remember what God said to Cain? You know, Cain murdered Abel, and after he did, and God interrogated him, remember what Cain said? Am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that? You bet you're your brother's keeper. We have a responsibility, especially in the family of God, to cover our brother and our sister. If somebody would strip them naked to cover them, to restore them, to bless them. If anyone is overtaken in any fault, Paul said to the Galatians in chapter 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. The Edomites stood aloof and didn't help. Ah, but it gets worse. Verse 12, But you should not have gazed... On the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Let me give you a a quick thumbnail of what the Babylonians did to Jerusalem. It wasn't one attack. There were three attacks and eventually a destruction and a burning over a period of several years. The first attack was 605 B.C. The Babylonians came, threatened the city, attacked the city, killed its population or part of it, and retreated. Eight years later, they were back. 597 B.C., they came again, destroyed more of the city, and this time took people captive. Daniel was among them. Then they showed up again, 11 years later, 586 B.C., they came this time, they utterly destroyed the city, took people captive, and burned the city with fire and destroyed the temple. The city fell 586 B.C. right in the middle of July, heat of the summer. By mid-August, the temple had been burned and the city burned. And again, if you go to Jerusalem today, we can show you today buildings scorched with fire from the Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. Now, while all this was going on, not only did the Edomites know it was going on and they were aloof and detached, but it says you gazed on your brother in the day of his captivity and you should not have rejoiced. The Edomites were throwing a party, laughing and casting lots among themselves as to who would go into Jerusalem after the Babylonians left and loot the city. Different parts of it. Laughing at their calamity. I found it disgusting back when the first Gulf War took place and scuds were being fired into Tel Aviv in apartments, at homes of innocent people from Baghdad. And they showed clips of people dancing in the streets. Oh, it's great. Innocent people have been killed. Hoo, hooray! Or, when the Twin Towers were attacked on September 11th, you remember some of the footage of different people around the world rejoicing. Good. America deserves it, they said. They have what's coming to them are rejoicing in that kind of calamity. That's what their pride led to. And you know, it doesn't just happen between brothers like Jacob and Esau, Edomites and Israelites. It can even happen between brothers and sisters in Christ. There are some who rejoice at calamity. You know, they'll, they'll never get involved in, and help out, but they'll, on the other hand, be ready to find any information they have about you in hopes that there might be a chink in your armor or some supposed problem that they could get a hold of and dig up information and rejoice when you stumble. It's happened throughout church history. God doesn't take a liking to that, He says here. You should not have entered, verse 13, the gate of my people, the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In the day of their calamity, indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction. In the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance. They looted the city. Again, they cast lots and they took what the Babylonians left. In the day of their calamity, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained. Now, to make matters worse, not only did their pride lead to them standing aloof, not only did their pride lead to them laughing and rejoicing and stealing, but some of the people when the Babylonians destroyed the city, some of the the victims in Judah who were not taken captive and brought to Babylon, they escaped and they, they ran for the hills. And a lot of them ran east of Jerusalem down through the Dead Sea area and they went through Edom on their way to Egypt for asylum. The Edomites captured them, rounded them up, and brought them back to the Babylonian army. Instead of providing a refuge for them, they gave their brothers to the hands of their enemies. So, doom is pronounced. Again, we have a duty... To restore. We have a duty to restore in the spirit of meekness, considering ourselves as we're also tempted. Do you know a brother or sister going through a time of calamity? A hard time? What kind of a brother or sister would you be if you were to say, well, serves you right. I always knew this would happen to you. Rather than that, say, you're my brother, you're my sister. How can I help heal this wound? Now, let me tell you a story at this point before we finish the book, and we're about done, and we'll make the time, no problem. Let me tell you a story, not about two brothers, not a story about two kingdoms, but let me tell you a story about two kings, a tale of two kings. One was an Edomite king, and one was Jewish. The Edomite king was a very interesting fella. He was, as I said, I do man, His name was Herod the Great. His descendants, uh, his uh, predecessors came from Edom. Herod the Great was the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem because he thought one of them might be the Messiah and he'd be a threat to his kingdom. So his whole philosophy and motto in life is I want to eliminate anybody who's going to stand in my way. He killed them. It was all about him. How can I protect my kingdom? After Herod the Great died, his successor was a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. Same family, Idumean. He killed John the Baptist. Again, the motto, the theme, preserve my kingdom. What about me? What's in it for me? That's the story of one king. That one king faced another king who was Jewish. His name was Jesus Christ. Not only was he called by Pilate the king of the Jews, We know Him as the King of Kings. And Jesus' philosophy of life was very different. It's not, what about me and what about my comfort? His whole philosophy is, what about others? How can I help others? How can I serve others? I know, I'll give my life for others. The Edomite king, Herod, thought, I'll take the life of others for me. Jesus said, I'll give my life so that others may live. That's the tale of two kings, one Edomite, one Jewish, one temporary, one eternal. Very, very different stories. Now let's finish the book and see the doom now expanded. Now what you find here in the last few verses as we close this up, it seems as though Obadiah the prophet, Obi, is carried into the future in spirit, in mind. And and it's not just Edom now that is going to experience judgment, but all the nations, as we see in verse 15, for the day of the Lord, a catchphrase that you know by now, the day of the Lord upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So now Edom and what happened to Edom in the past becomes... Uh, a, a preview, as we've often seen in the prophets of the Old Testament, of coming attractions in the end of times, the day of the Lord. You know that the day of the Lord is an episode when God, through a period of judgment upon the earth, in what is called the tribulation, culminating in the great tribulation period, culminating in the return of Jesus Christ to the earth, puts an end to the day of man. The day of the Lord will end the day of man ruling and reigning in his own power and his own wisdom. So the prophet gets taken forward. And what he saw with Edom, he sees now with all the nations who would want especially to destroy Israel. God says, you want to destroy my inheritance? I'm going to come against you. Verse verse 16, For as you drank on my holy mountain, that is Mount Zion, their drunken parties because Jerusalem had fallen, So shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. What does that mean? As you drank, so you're going to drink again, and you're going to drink the whole thing. They drank literally in the past their wine in celebration of Israel's doom, not knowing that God has a covenant with Israel and will reestablish her perpetually. So God says, since you saw fit to drink your wine and party hardy in Jerusalem after they fell, guess what? You're going to drink another cup. And you know by reading the Bible that the term judgment is seen often and described as drinking a cup. Right? Like Revelation chapter 16. They shall drink the wine of the fullness of the wrath of God. That is a common phrase used for judgment. So, you drank in toasting the Jerusalem fell. Now you're going to drink continually the cup of judgment. And those nations, Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 14, who come against Israel in the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, to destroy her, I will so utterly destroy it will be as though they never existed. So, utter and total will be the destruction. But, in contrast to that, on Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. There shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. You know, it's sort of of a, a funny side note. Not all that funny, but The Jews throughout history have often had this little saying. They said, God, if we're the chosen people, couldn't you have chosen somebody else? Because here we are, your chosen people. We've had people forever hating us, trying to destroy us. This is the lot of being your chosen people. Couldn't you have chosen somebody else? But here's God's choice. God's choice is that it will eventuate... In the total restoration of the people of Israel, there will be deliverance in Mount Zion. There will be holiness. The house of Jacob will possess their possessions. In other words, the land allotment God gave to Abraham from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean, north and south, the borders they have never, ever historically enjoyed, they will enjoy in the millennium. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, in other words, bold, confident. But the house of Esau, that is the Edomites, shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Now I have a problem. And I'll confess it to you. I have a problem with those who would read what we just read and seek to spiritualize it. To read what we just read and say, well, that's not a promise to Israel literally. That's a a spiritualized, allegorical promise that must only be fulfilled in the new Israel, the church. I have a problem with that. I love my amillennial brethren, but I have a problem with that interpretation. Why? Why? Twofold. I have a problem, number one, with their hermeneutic. That is, here I am interpreting the book of Obadiah, and everything I say up till this verse is all literal. It's a literal prophecy, it's literally been fulfilled. But suddenly there's a change in verse 17, and it's no longer literal, it's all allegorical and spiritualized. You can't do that. Number two, I have a problem with that view of God. To interpret it that way, allegorical, spiritually, is to say, you know, God isn't big enough to keep a promise. I know He promised to Abraham this land. I know He promised to Isaac and to Jacob and to Paul. But He just can't keep His promise. Well, if you don't think God can keep that promise, then you go home and you read Jeremiah 31 and Romans chapter 11, and it'll settle the issue. What God said literally He would do with Israel, He will do in the future. And they'll possess the land of their possessions. Some of the lands are mentioned. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau. The lowland shall possess Philistia. That's uh, the Gaza area. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captives of this host shall possess the... uh, uh, of This host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath, the captives of Jerusalem, Horin in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And then the last verse. But before I give you the last verse, I'd want to tie a couple of things together. Some people see the country of Edom, modern-day Jordan, principally the city of Petra, that rock city we showed you pictures of, as being very instrumental in the last days, in the tribulation period. Because in Revelation chapter 12, there is a prediction that, as John sees this uh, uh, people of Israel uh, taken into the wilderness... The wilderness, by the way, in the New Testament is a term that always spoke of that area east of the Dead Sea. And she will go there with the two wings of an eagle and will be protected by God for 1,260 days. It's a very odd but very particular prophecy that Israel will be protected in the wilderness carried there by the wings of an eagle for 1,260 days. That's Revelation 12, mentioned twice there. Some have interpreted that as being the rock city of Petra. It is still as it was then. It could be um, protected quite easily and you could put a lot of people in there and keep them away from the wrath of the Antichrist. That is a possibility. They even go so far, and it's interesting, I'm not going to count it out, that the wings of an eagle could be, some think, the United States, which is a symbol of our country. And because we have in the Mediterranean the 6th fleet of the United States Air Force stationed in that area, that they will airlift them over to the city of Petra, taken by two wings of the great eagle, protected by God. Now, I'm not saying that's what it is, but it is pretty interesting. That it could play a part in the last days in protection of Israel. And now, the last verse. The saviors, or the deliverers, or the judges shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So here's the scenario in the last days. Nations gather around Jerusalem, gather around Israel to destroy her. That will be interrupted as the day of the Lord is culminated by the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19. And he comes as one who treads the winepress of the wrath of God and gives the cup of judgment for the nations to drink and destroys them. Then, Jesus Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem, geopolitically, literally, and He will have administrators, saviors, deliverers will come to Mount Zion. You know who that is? Well, you'll be part of that. We're going to rule and reign with him, the Bible says, and he'll rule with a rod of iron. You know, I'll take any job in the millennium, right? What a privilege to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. You know, I, I'll take Hawaii. I don't even have to rule and reign. I'll just watch over it. Not even all of Hawaii. Just maybe little tiny shore. I've got it all scoped out over there. Now, one final way to end this book. We've talked about Petra. We've talked about Eden. We've talked about the doom, past tense, historically and in the future. Now, I want to introduce you to what I'm going to call the man from Petra. Ready? Turn to, and we'll close here, Isaiah chapter 63. That's the best way to end the book of Obadiah, isn't it? Isaiah 63. Now, of course, as you turn there and as we read a couple verses and then pray, you have in your mind, or at least put it in your mind, Revelation 19, where Jesus is described coming from heaven, judging the nations, treading the winepress of the wrath of God. He has blood-stained garments. It's the blood of his enemies. But notice where he comes from in verse 63. Or verse 1 of chapter 63. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? That's the city of Petra. This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Now the answer. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the question is asked this one. Why is your apparel red? in your garments, like one who treads the winepress. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm... "...brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in mine anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth." Interesting, isn't it? When Jesus comes, if indeed His people, those sealed, 144,000, protected by God during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period... That Jesus is seen as coming back, yes, from heaven, but then as he comes to the earth, coming from Petra in protecting them and destroying the enemies who would wipe them out. As part of the last final blow of the Battle of Armageddon, and right after that, right after that, comes the thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. So, Obadiah, yeah, a one hit wonder, a short little book, 21 verses, packed full of history. Packed full of prophecy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand some very salient lessons tonight as we close. We understand, first of all, that you hate pride. Anybody who would seek to be independent from trusting you is to be most pitied. We also learn, Lord, that you are in control of history. As we often say, history is his story. You plotted it out. You're sovereign. You're in control. And finally, Lord, that when you make a deal with people, you keep your end of the bargain. You've made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and you promise to fulfill it as a covenant God to the very end. And Lord, we're placed under the new covenant. How blessed we are to be your children that because Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and shed His blood for us, our blood won't stain your garments in the end. We thank You for this covenant. And now we pray, Father, that our lives might be lived in total surrender and submission to You, Thank you for this hour that we've spent in this delightful book of the prophet Obadiah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.